Hello, you guys. Welcome to episode 44 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives on the well-known and, more importantly, not-so-well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars. It is me, Troy McEady, and um, it's been a week since we last spoke, um, or two weeks, I suppose. Um, hmm, how do I put this? You are speaking to what I've been referring to myself as the pet cemetery version of myself. Um, I've survived death. Or I may have died. And I'm a different person now. I'm a little bit more crass. I'm a little bit more mean. Um, I'm like Gage from Pet Cemetery. Like I have an I have a liking for little little itty bitty tiny switchblades. By the way, I don't know why I'm starting off we're literally five seconds in and I'm starting off with a tangent about Gage from Pet Cemetery. But like anybody who knows me knows that Gage is my spirit animal. And if you've ever seen Pet Cemetery, it shouldn't be any surprise to you. Um, he's a deathly little boy who, like I said, his his choice weapon is a scalpel that's literally the size of a tic-tac. And in one of the scenes, he um, wears a velvet gown, which isn't, isn't explained. Uh, and he has a cane made of little kitten spines. Um... <laughs> So that kind of sums me up in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell, like you had me at kitten spine cane, first of all. And he wears a top hat. Like that's that's my kind of murderer. Anyway, I feel like Gage because I survived death this week. Um or this past week, I guess I should say. You guys, I had a traumatic event happen to me. Um it really I mean it's really changed who I am. It's changed the direction that my life is gonna take, and it's it's dark. Um I got food poisoning from a hibachi restaurant. Um, again, and anybody who knows me intimately knows that I have... I already have, like, this weird thing against hibachis. Like, I do not... I don't fuck with a hibachi. We can get into the reasons if that's what... I mean, you know... If you want to talk... I mean, we can do it. Because it's a whole thing. Like, I, I just... I cannot fuck with a hibachi restaurant. Here's the thing. Reason number one... I've been going to hibachi restaurants like most people for my entire life. So, for me, and I'm not speaking for everybody, I'm speaking for myself, I I don't enjoy the production of it all. Like, every time you go, everybody sitting at the table acts as if it's the first time they've ever been. Like, it's the first time they've seen the fucking beating heart rice. Like, it's the first time they've seen the volcano onion. You know what I mean? Like... like, every time they squeeze oil on the pan and ignite the entire restaurant, it's like, everybody freaks out. And I just can't. Like, it's so... It's the same shit at every single restaurant. I can't pretend to be completely shocked by you chopping the tails off of shrimp, like, quickly and, like, shooting them into the air. Like, I don't care. You know what I mean? Um, that's A. B, you smell like shit when you leave. True or false? Have you ever gone to a hibachi-style restaurant, like a Benihana or anything like that, and you leave literally smelling like you were dipped by, like, a giant hook in grease. Like, you smell like a person who uses, like, fast food grease to fuel their car. Like, you smell like absolute shit when you leave a hibachi restaurant. It doesn't matter where it is, what kind of... It doesn't matter. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is that you smell like dog shit. It's annoying. 
So I usually sit on the sushi side, because that's some, you know, some hibachi restaurants, you can do that, you sit on the other side, like an old man. It's me and all the old women over there, like, ordering our, our hibachi from the dark, quiet, clean side of the restaurant that doesn't smell. Um, also, it's not sanitary, to be honest. Like, this guy who's, like, chopping up chicken, and then using the same chicken utensils to chop up other meats and vegetables that only cook a couple seconds on the grill and then he's using his chicken utensils to flop shit at you the whole thing is a got it's a cesspool really um so yeah i got food poisoning at a hibachi this week well this past week uh i ordered chicken and shrimp like the basic bitch i am and uh you know i already i look like an asshole at hibachi restaurants because I'm the person who doesn't partake in any of, like, the activities. Like, I don't catch shit in my mouth. You know what I mean? I don't interact with the cook. I just, I don't want any of it. And I look around, and everything surrounding me feels like everything I hate about our country. There's, like, some big-titted... There's, like, essentially a Jenny Jizz sitting next to me, like, wearing a fucking straw, like, cowboy hat that she got from, like, a Sitco or something... By the way, that's a gas station, a local gas station that went out of business probably 15 years ago. Just to give you a little bit of um, an idea where I am mentally. Um, But, like, it's some crazy bitch who's, like, drunk, hammered drunk, like, you know, staggering all over the place. And that whole thing's annoying. And then the kids are annoying. Also, by the way, you sit with strangers. It's like, why am I forced to sit with people I don't know? That's annoying. Um... And it was just a terrible experience. The guy was like, he wanted me to catch a, a piece of chicken, and I didn't want to. I was dressed really cute, and I was wearing something that was like, could have easily stained. So the last thing I want, naturally, is a, a scalding hot piece of chicken from the hot... By the way, can you tell I'm like triggered? We're five minutes in. Um, but the last thing I want coming towards me is a scalding hot piece of fried chicken towards my face. Like, what? So, of course, I didn't catch it. It, like, plummeted down my shirt, fucking stained my shirt. And then he shot a fish or a shrimp tail at me. Because who doesn't love a scalding hot, greasy shrimp tail thrown at their face? Like, that's what I love about going out to dinner. And he got it in my drink. So then I had to ask for another drink because he didn't just give me one. A cocktail, by the way. It wasn't like water. I was drinking gin, and he got a fishtail in my glass and didn't do anything about it. I was just like, what is this? Like, who is running this restaurant? Just like a room full of monkeys? Um, anyway, <laughs> so now that we're seven minutes in, um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, it was a rough week. I was like near death. I've never, I've never, I mean, I've had food poisoning. I don't know if that was what you would consider salmonella poisoning because it was chicken or if it was from something else. I really don't know, but I can tell you, um, I've only lived in this apartment, this new apartment that I live in now for about five months and I got really very well acquainted with the toilet. Um, I learned all of its nooks and crannies and, uh, yeah, the bathroom floor was my best pal for about four days it was really it was really awful um but i'm back i'm back in but again this is the pet cemetery version of me i came back from the dead and i'm a different person and while i was away i thought i really want to do an episode that feels special i want to do something you know 
really messy and juicy and dark. I want to do something that encompasses all the things that I think make up this podcast. And I think that I've done that. Um, you guys, we're going to be talking about Aaliyah and R. Kelly today. And I'm like, I'm really freaking out. <laughs> it's a lot. There's a lot of information. Um, I found a lot of really, really good stories. And I don't know. I'm really excited about this one. Um, I also found this interview with, with, uh, with R. Kelly, this GQ interview from, I think, two years ago. That I'm gonna read a little bit of you, or read a little bit of to you. I'm telling you, it will change your entire life. Like, I've read it now probably, probably four times, and it's pretty long. I'm not gonna read you the whole thing, obviously, just the good stuff. But I don't know. I'm just I'm really excited to talk about this. I love Aaliyah, obviously, and um, I think America's relationship with R. Kelly is just fucking strange, um, especially now, like in the Me Too movement. Like, we're still just okay with this fucking psychopath man just existing. I don't know, it's weird. Um, but now that we're nine minutes into it, and all you know is that I went to a hibachi last week, I suppose we should get started. Um, so Aaliyah, oh, by the way, also, I have this, like, big giant water bottle. Actually, the water that I'm drinking right now, the, it, Molly gave this to me for Christmas. It's a Breaking Bad, um, like, water bottle. It's actually really fucking cool. But just to give you a heads up, the bottle itself sounds like... When I take a sip of it, it sounds like... It sounds like a wet butthole or something. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I can't think of a, um, uh, a PG version of explaining what it sounds like when I drink from it. But what I can tell you is that it won't be pleasant to your ears. I'm just letting you know that right now. It may trigger some of you. Anyway, Aaliyah and R. Kelly met in the early 90s uh, when she was 12. And they started dating in February of 1992. Uh, they got engaged in ninety in June of ninety four, and they uh, they got secretly married in August of the same year. Um, it was very quickly annulled by Aaliyah and her family. Obviously, uh, they very famously falsified documents so that they could get married. Um, the marriage certificate said that Aaliyah was eighteen at the time; she was fifteen, and. They were introduced by R. Kelly's manager um, and Gladys Knight's husband. His name is Barry Hankerson. And he also just so happens to be Aaliyah's uncle. He's very important in this story. He plays a very, very pivotal part. I mean, he introduced them, so uh, it all kind of revolves around this guy, Barry. And um, R. Kelly was considered to be Aaliyah's mentor in the 90s. He helped her write and produce her debut album, Age Ain't Nothing But age ain't nothing but a number which like you know 30 years beyond that now like that title is so dark i cannot believe that we lived in a time where r kelly married a 15 year old girl and then wrote an album for her called age ain't nothing but a number as he's approaching 30 the whole thing is fucking bananas um And this is just, like, the first in a long line of R. Kelly's very public sexual assault cases that would sort of plague his career, um, and for some reason not ruin it. I don't really understand, but, you know, I've I've obviously got a lot to say about that later. I mean, I have so much shit to say about R. Kelly, I just don't even know. I don't have words, really. Um, I've got to be honest, though, I think that um, the information that I've read about him in doing research for this episode is 
some of the most interesting information I think I've read so far of like any celebrity that I've covered he's just a really weird guy he's lived a very weird life um he has he's had a very dark past and I think his problems are shockingly very easily traceable you know I think for a lot of people for people that are as damaged as people like R. Kelly or like say Michael Jackson or people that you've seen have very public mental breakdowns um or just do crazy shit publicly that becomes pop culture it's like it it almost is like so it's easy to kind of root where it comes from because we watch their lives play out in a sense and I don't know I'll I'll talk about it in a minute when we get to R. Kelly I don't want to ruin it um I mean as far as Aaliyah I mean uh, Aaliyah is just somebody that I find so interesting because she's one of those people that you know I think about retrospectively obviously since she's no longer here and you know if you're listening to this podcast you probably are old enough to have remembered a time when Aaliyah was not only alive but very culturally relevant and you know at the top of her game and influential and just you know Aaliyah was a big deal and in my mind like I, I do this thing with her a lot when she comes up or like when I see a picture of her where I'll sort of try and like piece together what the music industry would be like had she not been a part of it like had we not ever had Aaliyah like what artists that we love would be here or wouldn't be here or whatever and like you know her impact on pop and in R&B is so incredible and it's it's spread so far you know but it's not necessarily something that we talk about a lot it's just sort of there and i mean especially now that like you know for really young millennials you know they're also inspired by like early 2000s pop culture and like early 2000s fashion and you know the peak of like edginess right now is like urban street wear that's like just heavily inspired by Aaliyah's look that she created um so it just makes you wonder like would girls like Rihanna and Sierra and uh I don't know you fucking Cassie and all these girls like you know very specifically though Rihanna and Sierra like would these girls exist can you imagine what Rihanna would look like today had she not had Aaliyah not existed I mean, that's a really weird thing to think about. What would her music be like? What would her, you know, the whole thing. What would, um, what would Sierra's dancing be like? I mean, Sierra's, not only is her look, she's literally an Aaliyah 2.0. Like, Rihanna, you can definitely see the inspiration, but Sierra is, like, especially during, like, the peak of her actual music career, her Like a Boy era, are you kidding me? Like, she is, she is a hybrid of Aaliyah. So, I don't know, it's just interesting, and, you know, I just wonder, it's just sad, obviously, to think about. She was so young, and, like, you know, doing all this research on her life, like, it's just so shocking how young she was when she died. Like, she was so much younger. I remember, even in my mind, it's like, I still, like, look up to her as if she's, like, this adult woman, because that's what I knew her as, as a child, you know, as a, as a, as a teenager. She was this, like, grown-ass, really smart down like cool woman like just like this edgy cool girl but she was 22 years old um also by the way i just have to really mentally prepare myself to like talk about r kelly for an hour like 
I'm excited. Obviously, I've made that very clear, but I'm also like, it's a lot, and it's dark, and, you know, so I'm just gonna start with Aaliyah, because it feels like a safe place, if that's okay. Um, so Aaliyah had a fairly normal childhood. Uh, I mean, she grew up in a pretty regular, like, working class, blue-collar, you know, two-parent household. Um, she was extremely close to her brother. Her dad worked in a factory, and her mom was a stay-at-home mom. She was also a vocalist, um, and a singer. So, Aaliyah's uncle, who I mentioned earlier, was a man named Barry Hankerson, who was not only an entertainment lawyer, but was also, uh, once married to Gladys Knight. So, essentially, he was, like, this huge figure in the music industry. Aaliyah was the first person on a record label that he created that we'll talk about here in a minute, but he also managed uh, Tony Braxton, uh, Timbaland, of course, and very famously JoJo, which I don't know if you guys follow, like, I'm obsessed with JoJo, and I always have been, and JoJo was trapped in this really horrific um, contract for nine years, and that's why we didn't hear from her from childhood to adulthood for, you know, almost ten straight years, because she was trapped in this contract where she they weren't giving her music and they weren't promoting her or doing anything with her but she also couldn't leave so she just like couldn't sing basically um the same thing i'm pretty sure that happened to christina million but anyway um so Aaliyah grew up like traveling around with gladys knight um that's kind of where she learned how to like work a stage you know gladys would bring her out on stage and it's how she learned about how the industry works and how recording songs works and the whole thing. She got her whole sort of like um, music industry boot camp from Gladys. And at age 10, she started auditioning for commercials. She appeared in Star Search. And uh, her mother actually made the decision at that point in her life to drop her surname. So, like, can we talk? Because at age 10, Aaliyah was a skinny iconic legend with one name like and <laughs> like, i'm sorry but like she was a one name pop star at age 10 like that's like fucking legendary um and Aaliyah's uncle signed a distribution deal with jive records which led to him starting his own record label called blackground records and um she was signed at age 12 uh her uncle at that point had introduced her to r kelly and sort of gave him the title of, I guess you could say, like, music mentor. Uh, He was brought in to, like, help sort of cultivate her sound, um, you know, help her sort of figure out what type of artist she wanted to be, and uh, he was given full creative control over the entirety of the album. So he wrote it, he produced it, um, all of it. He did everything. And uh, even as a child, Aaliyah was very sort of clear on what she wanted her style and her image to be um the baggy jeans the sunglasses the crop tops like the beanies like her entire like head to toe tommy hill figure aesthetic like the monochromatic like all of it was her that sort of like sexy tomboy thing um her uncle has said in interviews and stuff that even as a little girl she had this very clear vision of what she wanted to look like and since he was her uncle he basically let her do whatever she wanted um you know, he had a very different vision of what he thought she should look like, but it was her idea to be androgynous and mix this, like, 
almost like a T-Boz style thing, but it was all her. Like, it was all her idea. Um, that's the other really interesting thing about Aaliyah is that, you know, even though she was a little girl in the beginning stages of her career, she had total creative control. Um, I mean, aside from R. Kelly producing and directing, you know, doing the whole thing, he did her entire album, but like, he kind of let her do whatever she wanted to. I mean, she was like this little girl that was given all this creative ability. Um, I've also read that like R. Kelly at that point had become extremely close to her family. She was basically living with him and would spend half her time in Chicago and then the other half in Detroit where she grew up. She was still in school. Um, School was a huge deal for her. Even as a little kid, she was like really adamant on making sure she graduated. So even while her parents were like, you don't actually have to go to school right now if you don't want to, she made the decision to spend half her time in Chicago with R. Kelly and then the rest of her time in Detroit to try and get a degree. And, um, a degree, a diploma, whatever. Um, (laughs) her mom would also come stay at her and R. Kelly's loft in Chicago, um, which is like I'm really biting my tongue right now because I'm trying to sort of like hold off until we get to their actual relationship but her mother who the whole her mother was coming and staying in the loft that she was living in with R. Kelly who at that point was not innocent like R. Kelly had had some some sexual misconduct public shit happening even before Aaliyah so I just the whole thing makes zero sense to me but we're gonna just you know I don't want to digress um as far as Aaliyah's life I mean that's pretty much it like she was 12 like she didn't have some like (laughs) you know she didn't have some long twisted dark past like she was a 12 year old girl she was in middle school and was like recording songs now, we do have to talk about R. Kelly now. Just really prepare yourself. I don't even know, man. Like, if you're, like, going to, like, work or something, like, I don't even know if this is, like, what you should be listening to before work. Like, it's so dark. This is kind of, like, an after work. I'm a little bit drunk. I've had a glass of wine. Maybe you, like, are gonna pull out that stash of cigarettes in your closet that's, like, stuck in a shoe. Like, it's, like, one of those episodes. You know what I mean? Put the earbuds in go outside, chain smoke a couple cigarettes, like, spray the Febreze so the kids don't know. Like, it's that kind of episode. I'm just letting you know now. It's fine. Um, we have to talk about R. Kelly. One of the most interesting, like, confusing, dark, twisted, very talented, musically, very risk-taking, um, deranged monsters to walk amongst us. Like, R. Kelly is literally a Marvel villain. I I wrote the whole thing about how I seriously think that he's a Marvel villain, like, in my notes. Like, he... He's nuts. Like, he's a Marvel... He's a Marvel villain, like, before they turn. When they're still, like, a human person, but, like, a little bit crazy. And, like, if he got angry enough, he would invent some sort of, like, contraption that, like, destroys New York City. He has girls trapped in, like, gold cages and, like, a dungeon and is, like... You know what I mean? Like, that's what I picture. Like, this guy is just fucking insane. We'll also make our way back to Age Ain't Nothing But a Number, by the way, because I have a lot to say about that. And, um, 
I just have to do some housekeeping first. You know, we have to get, you know, we get to spill the tea on what R. Kelly was doing before meeting Aaliyah and, like, who he was as a person and all those things that we do every week. You know the drill. It's fine. Um, so the public's relationship with R. Kelly is something that, like I said earlier, I don't understand. I will never understand. It's like we live in this weird sort of limbo with him where it's like we haven't necessarily forgiven him and we definitely haven't forgotten but it just seems like no matter what he does and continues to do by the way we only care enough to like write about it but not to like do anything which is crazy um it's like i don't know like i feel like when people talk about r kelly and they like make jokes about him peeing on girls and like you know he's like a huge punchline but it's like when you think about what those jokes are rooted in that this man is a known sex offender and that he does have a fetish for peeing on children like it's very very dark and i almost feel like us joking about it for so many years has totally desensitized us to like what he is which is a monster um he had a really, 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 really fucked up childhood. So, which, by the way, I'm sure doesn't come as any surprise to you, but he, um, he just, it was a, he had a dark, he had a dark, uh, a dark path, I guess you should say, uh, as a child. Um, and again, like a guy with, like, the, the sort of sexual fetishes that he has, trapping little girls in his basement and turning them into sex slaves like no shock so he was raised um in the ida b wells projects in chicago and one of the most prolific things about his past is that he grew up without a father and it seemed to really affect him deeply like he's written songs about it like this is a really big deal for him and um he was also raised with a mom who was a little bit, you know, she wasn't the the best. I think I'm pretty. From what I picked up on, she was a little bit abusive, and he wasn't allowed to mention his dad. Like from childhood to being a teenager, he wasn't allowed to talk about his dad. He couldn't ask about him. He couldn't ask where he was or what his name. Nothing. He doesn't know anything about his dad. He isn't allowed to. Um, and I can't even imagine like what that's rooted in. He was also sexually abused. Um, as a 10-year-old by a woman who spent time in his house. Um, she was a family member and also very close to his mother. And the first time it happened, he wrote in his book that he was sleeping on, um, he was sleeping on the couch in his house. He was having a dream about Three's Company, and he was, like, sort of laughing to himself in this dream. And then he woke up to a woman performing oral sex on him at 10 years old. And it progressively got worse and worse throughout the years, um, to the point that it turned into full-on intercourse uh, when he was like a preteen. And in his uh, in his biography, he also wrote, "I tried to push her away, but she wouldn't stop until she was finished. Uh, when she was, she said, you better not say shit to anybody, or else you're gonna get a terrible whipping.'" And uh, I'm gonna read a couple excerpts from this GQ article, like throughout this entire episode because it's just it's just so incredible he said so I'm going to go back and forth between the between R. Kelly and the interviewer um, starting with R. Kelly so he said at first I couldn't judge it I, um, 
he said, I remember it feeling weird. I remember feeling ashamed. I remember closing my eyes and keeping my hands over my eyes. I remember those things, but couldn't judge it one way or the other fully. The interviewer said, did it happen? Did that change over time? He said, over time, yes. I remember actually, after a couple of years, looking forward to it sometimes. You know, acting like I didn't, but I actually did. You guys, I hate to cut you off, but at this point, I think you know the drill. You've got to be a Patreon member to hear the remainder of this episode. So, go to patreon.com slash ebpsychos. At that point, you will uh, be asked to donate. And then when you donate at this level, you'll get this podcast. You'll get the remainder of all the episodes every single week. You'll get Liz Bentley's Feathers in My Hair, which is the Teen Mom podcast. Um, you'll get me and Molly's uh, Brittany and Kevin Chaotic special. You'll get all the stuff that Molly does exclusively through Patreon. It's well worth it. And also, if you're not a member of our Facebook group, go to mollyandthepsychos.com. It'll take you straight to it. And uh, all we do all day and all night is talk about reality TV. It's super fun. So, like I said, patreon.com slash ebpsychos and mollyandthepsychos.com. 